Hello, I'm Rena Grobe, and I'm Madhvi Ramani, and this is Misinformed, where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So, Madhvi, what did you get obsessed with this week? I've been following the multiple stories about racism in the news media, so within the corporations and outlets themselves. Which, wow, it's like a dam has broken. Many editors have resigned. Most notably, I guess the editor of the opinion page of the New York Times, editor of Bon Appetit, the editor of Refinery Twenty Nine, Vogue, Variety, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Fedors, The Cut, Condé Nast have all come under fire for racism within their organizations. Yeah, it's kind of been like a purge, hasn't it, within the media world? There's been many top-ranking leadership positions that have been axed because of accusations of racism. Not only racist actions by the editors in chief, but also systematic racism within their own publications. So, in the past week. A lot of black journalists or journalists of color have come out reporting critical management, racism, pay disparity. The Neiman Journalism Lab, which is part of Harvard, started collecting all of these stories under a Twitter thread. We'll link to it in the show notes, but it's really disgusting and eye-opening to see how black journalists and writers of color are struggling, you know, to do their jobs basically, and are constantly undermined and underpaid and treated badly. There's a really funny response in this thread that said, "Wow, between this and Me Too, newsrooms must be a terrible place to work at." And yes, I think they are, but they're probably no worse than any other organization. But the media is super important because they have a responsibility, and they also have a big impact on our perceptions and views in society and our culture. And I think that this is a has been a long time coming. I also think that this is in direct relationship to the Black Lives Matter movement because every part of our society sort of contributes to systematic oppression, including the media, not just in the way that they treat their own employees, but sort of the picture that they give towards the outside and how they talk about things. So it's something that needed to happen, and it's great that it's happening. So if we look at the case of the New York Times, the editorial director of the opinion page decided to give some space for the opinion of the Arkansas senator Tom Cotton, who wanted basically in this opinion piece to send in the military against the Black Lives Matter protesters. There are a variety of problems with this approach. Number one, it was not fact-checked completely, so he made a load of claims which had no factual base. And even later on, the New York Times did say this piece did not meet our editorial standards, which already is an example of somebody in power getting away with something or being given the space to express a bunch of stuff in a way that person of color or anyone else just would not be able to do in the New York Times, which is considered an authoritative, prestigious place and a reliable place to get your news. Second of all, the argument is that the New York Times opinion pages must show a balance. Of views, including the view that maybe you could send in the military to deal with protesters, but 
there was not a balance because no extreme opinion the other way by an anarchist protest was actually published. So this balance is not really represented because, of course, in the New York Times opinion pages, the people who get the most amount of space are people in positions of power. And then, like I was saying, the media has a responsibility. And to legitimize and publish this opinion in a prestigious newspaper is dangerous at this time. And I feel like the white editor in charge maybe missed something or did not see or did not realize because of his race what the implications were for black journalists who work there. First of all, it's really hard being a black journalist at the New York Times anyway, or in the media anyway, and we'll go into that a little bit later probably. So airing an anti-black opinion is disrespectful of the black staff that work at the New York Times and also puts black lives in danger. So if you were a black editor, maybe you would make different decisions. And this is also about objectivity because if everyone at the top everyone making decisions are you know white and they say that they are being objective well no not necessarily we are seeing everything and framing everything through a white lens whether you like it or not i think that the danger of publishing something like that whether it's an opinion or not is that it legitimizes an opinion like that and not to say that there are right or wrong opinions and that not all opinions are worth sharing. But in this case, you shouldn't give a platform to people claiming that shooting people is good. It's like when Question Time invited Nigel Farage onto their platform and everyone got really mad. It's like, why are you giving him a platform to spew his hate? It's kind of in the same family of concerns, isn't it? You can't legitimize terrible calls to action like that. The main issue is that they're framing the narrative through the perspective of a white man okayed by editors at a white publication. They're telling everything through the lens of how a white man is perceiving everything. And therefore the voices of black people or the people protesting is being completely eradicated. This whole idea of objectivity in journalism is quite new. It's about 100 years old. It started in 1919 when a prolific journalist, Walter Lippmann, said that good journalism must have a scientific spirit. So they should base their reporting more on statistics, which kind of closely resembles a model of reporting that we see today. But who's collecting the statistics and facts? Which statistics and facts are we going by all of this stuff? That's also subjective. You know, who has power in institutions that are conducting studies or that are collecting figures like police department figures? What are the best interests of the institutions that are collecting statistics, for example? And also in the name of objectivity, a lot of journalists of colour or black journalists are stopped from reporting or writing about things because the editors or the gatekeepers of the news world say, well, you're too close to the story to report on it. And so I mentioned this thread that is going on on Twitter at the moment with the Neiman storyboard. And Anne Vasquez said, just as an illustration of this, that when she was a cub reporter, she was asked in a meeting with newsroom editors about whether she should step aside writing a story about Latinos because she was too close to it. And then she says, the question that follows was even worse. Should the Bavarian write it? And she says, this discussion came as she pushed back on a story about Latino birth rates. And the suggestion was to travel to California's border to tell the story of the poorest Latinos. But she asked for the meeting after doing her homework. And she analyzed data that showed that over generations, the birth rates among Latinos leveled off as historically 
has been the case for all immigrant populations. So she instead wrote a story that took a nuanced look at one family over three generations. So the white editors were trying to frame the discussion about Latinos through their lens, and then they questioned her and tried to suppress her voice by questioning her objectivity. They never questioned their own objectivity over this at all. Or the same kind of questioning happened a few weeks ago with another publication, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, where a black reporter was banned from covering the protests. And the reason that this reporter was banned was that he went to a concert in Pittsburgh and then he kind of did a sarcastic tweet where he showed this trash-strewn parking lot and said, oh, this is the aftermath of all those selfish looters who don't care about the city. And then dot, dot, dot. Oh, wait, no, these are pictures from a Kenny Chesney concert. And so he was stopped from reporting on Black Lives Matter because they said that he was too close to the, like he had expressed an opinion in his Twitter and that disqualified him from reporting on the matter at all. I think the audacity of white people that they get to write about emotional or sensitive topics because they are the only ones who can keep their emotions out of it and no one else can. Because what this really is saying is that white people don't really have anything to be upset about. The world in which white journalists work is so comfortable and lacking in oppression for them. And I do want to emphasize here that, of course, women aren't treated fairly in the media just as they are in the world. But white women, we do have it better in the media world, excluding, of course, white men. So this idea that we are the only ones who can write about these topics, what they're saying is we're the only ones who can be objective because we're the only ones who can step back and see the bigger picture. And they're eradicating the fact that emotions are often the thing that make not a story worth telling or not a good story, but we need to include emotions in stories. Yeah, so we've talked about this before. The idea that emotions should be removed from objective reporting, that in itself is not objective. It's pushing a particular agenda. So emotions are part of the reality of the world. We perceive the world through our senses, through emotions, that's how we experience reality, right? So an example of what happens when you remove emotion from reporting, it doesn't necessarily result in good journalism. The journalist Daniel Schneiderman, in his book Berlin 1933, examines how different news outlets outside of Germany portrayed the growing Nazi movement. And the reporting from, for example, the New York Times was sort of fragmentary and buried in the interior pages of the paper. Whereas the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, which was at the time dismissed as a kind of insufficiently neutral paper, used more suggestive language in reporting on the Holocaust and published profiles of the victims of anti-Semitism. So in this case, obviously just reporting the raw facts takes away from the reality of what is actually happening, which is why when the New York Times published this piece by Cotton, they received the most cancellations I think ever because people were just like, well, they would rather get their news from Instagram or Twitter, which is showing in real time what the experience is and what the reality is, instead of some white man's opinion on Black Lives Matter. This is sort of the criticism that New York Magazine came under this week. On June 8th, they released an issue of a Black Lives Matter protest, and people were really quick to point out that the photographer, their editor-in-chief, their director of photography, it's all white men. So 
They post this powerful photo, but, you know, they're using these protesters to sort of, it's virtue signaling, isn't it? They're like, oh, yeah, we're an organization full of white people, but we're down with the cause. Look, here's this incredible photo of this movement, but all of it is still told through the lens of these white men. Yeah, photojournalism is also touched by this. There was this great article in Dame Magazine, which is an independently funded magazine run by women. So if you're looking for a nice independent publication to support, donate to Dame, they're great. And they had a story called The Implicit Bias in Photojournalism. And they reference one particular case, which was Robert Curran, the white journalist who captured an image, it turned out to become an iconic image of the protests in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, following the fatal shooting of Michael Brown by the police officer Darren Wilson. And what he captured was a protester, Edward Crawford, throwing a burning tear gas canister back at the police. That's what it looked like. But Crawford, who was actually later charged with violating county ordinances, interfering with the police, said, I didn't throw a burning can back at the police. I threw it out of the way of my children because he was there with his children and the canister came his way and then he threw it back. But the way that everyone saw and interpreted this photo was that he was throwing it back at the police. And this is the problem of white people framing something. First of all, like the opinion piece that Cotton demonstrates, it's insensitive to the dangers this might pose because nobody asked for Crawford's consent, which revealed him to the police and also to dangerous white extremist forces. In fact, he was found dead in his car two years later, which it was claimed that this was a suicide. Many Ferguson protesters especially leaders of the Ferguson protest, they were killed later on. So it exposed him to danger, first of all. And then it just did this thing of claiming that this was the narrative and this was the story. And because it was published in the mainstream and also, you know, he won a Pulitzer Prize from it and he gained from it, it was taken as the truth, but it was not the truth. It's also sort of supporting another really gross aspect of the media industry that this white man got a Pulitzer Prize for a photo of a black man. So that in a time of incredible struggle of people trying to free themselves of oppression, white people are still benefiting from it in this way. Nobody gave him a prize for trying to protect his children, but they sure as hell gave the white man a Pulitzer Prize for a photo of it that was misrepresented. And it sort of highlights the problem with the fact that white voices are mostly leading, or at least in leading newspapers, framing the narrative around the Black Lives Matter or just in general protests. One of the really stupid things that white people have been doing is that a lot of people have been like posting photos and videos of the protests. And some people have taken to luring out faces and stuff, but it's like the police is actively using facial recognition software to identify these protesters. By putting a photo in the newspaper, you're actively endangering the person protesting. Are you going to endanger their lives just for your headline? Because it's all media that's sort of complicit in this. Even, you know, in Germany, when you watch the news, they'll show you videos of the protests and they don't blur anyone's faces. How dumb can you be? You need to examine what you're doing when you're posting these videos and not just you are only framing the protests as being violence and showing the protesters as violence, but you are actively endangering these people. And the problem of having only white decision makers and people in power in the media is that they decide not only 
what stories get told, how they get told, what voices get heard, which stories are important, all of that kind of stuff, which is not objective because of their implicit or explicit bias. It's also reflected in the language that is used. Language is one of the main things that journalists are taught, you know, to use in a way that is supposed to be kind of neutral. We're taught to take all the emotion out of our language, but that doesn't stop implicit bias being revealed in language choices. So NPR, for example, used the phrase unarmed black man 82 times in the past year. And most of those references occurred since Arbery, who was just running in the park, was shot dead. But in that same time period, unarmed white man did not appear anywhere in NPR's coverage. Lorenzo Boyd, who's the director of the Center for Advanced Policing at the University of New Haven, says that the fact that you have to signify that a black person is unarmed is problematic. Yeah, because it signifies that the default of a black person is dangerous and that the default of a white person is not dangerous. So you have to emphasize that the black person isn't dangerous, whereas we all just automatically believe the white person is it. So along with the language that we use, images are really important in how we uphold racist ideals within our society and specifically within the media. If we look at Vogue, for example, at LeBron James and Giselle Bündchen cover, you can see that it resembles the movie poster for King Kong, kind of presenting LeBron James as an animal and Giselle Bündchen as a damsel in distress who needs to be saved. And Vogue has been very complicit in sort of perpetuating these ideas of racism. Former editor-at-large Andre Leon Talley called out his former colleague and friend Anna Wintour for being a colonial dame and saying that the email that she sent a couple of days ago in which he apologized for upholding white supremacy within Vogue came from a space of white privilege and that she absolutely has no interest in anything ever changing and that, you know, he's saying like, we don't want an apology we want things to change and you need to think about the power that you have as editor-in-chief of this magazine because the images that you put on the cover, the stories that you run have a large impact. And I think that this is something that the media world is incredibly guilty of. If we look at other publications this week that have suffered accusations of racism or not diversity, if we look at Refinery29 and the latest one has been Man Repeller where editors-in-chief have stepped back due to people pointing out that there are no people of color in their leadership. There are very few people of color overall in their organizations. Although here I'm really frustrated because Leandra Medine stepping back and the editor-in-chief of Refinery29 stepping back, while yeah, symbolically that means something, meaning someone else can take their position, it could be a person of color, it actually doesn't really impact them all that much. Like it's purely a symbolic gesture because they are both still going to be involved with the the media companies they help found, they're still going to have an influence. They're still going to get money and get paid off of it. So while it's great that they're trying to make room for people of color to assume leadership positions, it's still just kind of virtue signaling a little bit. And in the case of like Bon Appetit, where Adam Rappaport, there was a photo posted by his wife of him and her in brown face from years ago with like an incredibly racist caption as well. He stepped back as editor in chief. 
And they replaced him with a white woman. So, like, the toxic and systematic racism within that company is going to be upheld because, yeah, they say she's just interim, like, they're going to find someone else. Is that really going to be the case? Because it's comfortable for them to be like, oh, hey, we got rid of him. We're just going to replace him with another white person and hope that it dies down and that nobody continues to call them out on their bullshit. In the case of Bon Appetit, people have pointed out that actually Anna Shapiro, which is the name of the new editor-in-chief, is a part of upholding a toxic work environment at the that company yeah about all of these changes like whether these changes will make a difference in the long run i think obviously like with everything else there's still a long way to go before these really old big institutions are going to change i know in one of the private facebook groups i'm in a journalist who works for condé nast said it's really exhausting as a person of color now to go in every single day and have all of these diversity meetings and workshops and all of this sort of stuff. And then she did a salary survey with some of her co-workers and found out that she was being paid at least 20k less a white woman who was doing exactly the same job as her with less managerial responsibilities. And when she told her manager, the manager was like, oh, I don't know, there's nothing really I can do about that. And recent surveys, you know, the Washington Post and so many other places show that ethnic minorities and black people are being paid way, way less for the same work than white people in the same positions in the media. And this is just another way in which they are undermined and undervalued. Again, if we look at the Neiman storyboard where people are tweeting transparently about their experiences, Zara Rahim says, fuck it if I get sued for this, but I got a 5k raise for my promotion to a director title and still was paid nearly 50k less than the white woman who had the job before me. Similarly, when the Bon Appetit scandal broke, one of the first people who publicly spoke out about it was Sola Elwali. And one of the things that really stood out about that to me was the fact that all of this had come after an internal meeting. She was angry about the fact that in the meeting, the things weren't actually addressed. So they had a meeting about how the editor-in-chief had posted a racist photo and the repercussions of this and how they would move forward. But there was no mention of him resigning or anything. And she called for him to be resigned in that meeting and wasn't taken seriously. So she took to social media. She was doing the labor of cleansing the media of racist people. And what you're mentioning about all these diversity trainings or other sort of meetings that all of these organizations are now having about how to, you know, not be racist, it's kind of a really, it's a stupid thing to do. Not educating yourself on racism or how to be more diverse. We're asking the people of color within the organization to do more emotional labor for us, of educating us, or to just stand by and smile and nod while white people in media organizations do silly gestures of learning. Instead, white people should be stepping up and taking tangible actions rather than subjecting people of color to our performative act of allyship, right? Rather than making them all sit through these stupid meetings where we pat ourselves on the back about how we're doing better, could just pay them more money or we could start actively hiring more people of color within organizations. They don't need meeting after meeting where we're like, look at what a great job we're doing. And specifically when it comes to pay, as you mentioned before, the personal assistant of the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit in the Business Insider expose about racism at Bon Appetit, she shared that her salary 
was 31K. That is a salary that she is expected to live on in New York City. First of all, it's absolutely insulting as a salary anyway, but it's even more disgusting when you think about where she lives, all of the tasks that she's giving, how degrading some of the tasks are that he gave her to do. In the article, she talks about how she had to go to HR because he wouldn't listen to her when she asked him to stop calling her on weekends. And also that like Sola and her colleague Christine or even her colleague Rick aren't paid for their on-screen appearances and videos. Whereas Claire, who granted isn't an employee of Bon Appetit, but she is a freelance editor for them, gets 20K per video that she does. And Sola and Christine and Rick, who make cameos, but in, for example, their Thanksgiving episode, plays a substantial role in that video. She wasn't compensated for this. She was given no money for extra work that she was doing beyond her regular job description. When on top of that, she was already paid way less than her white colleagues. And I think that what you pointed to here about transparency in how much we're making, because all of the other editors, specifically the white editors, claimed that they weren't aware that they weren't being compensated. And I kind of believe them in that case because, you know, we covered this in our money episode. We tend not to talk about how much money we make. So I believe the white editors when they say that they did not know how much money the other editors were making. But that doesn't excuse them from, they obviously witnessed toxic behavior. They're not idiots. They looked around and realized that there was not a single black person in the Bon Appetit test kitchen, that the editor-in-chief's personal assistant was the only black person in the entire organization. They must have noticed that. The fact that they didn't act on it means that they were complicit in upholding white supremacy within that organization. And yeah, it was white supremacy. Yeah, I used to work for the BBC and there used to be this joke that was like, the BBC does believe in diversity, it believes in hiring as many people who graduated from Oxford as from Cambridge and when you were at the BBC there are black people and people of color who work there but very few and it's very hard as a person of color to work in an organization especially when you're being continuously discriminated against because you're always aware of the fact as a person of color or as a black person that you are not just like a white person just representing yourself you are maybe representing and hindering the progress of every other black person that comes after you. So should you speak? Should you make a fuss over your salary? Should you not? If you do make a fuss over your salary, then you're feeding into people's stereotypes of, oh, you know, you're not being grateful enough or you're just making a fuss or, you know, it's a hassle to employ black people. The most amount of black people you see at the BBC is when you go into the canteen. And it's it's just hard. It's hard to work in a mostly white environment and try and go in every single day and do better than everyone else and still get shit and that's what's really terrifying about the Neiman Storyboard tweet thread that you can just see that people are traumatized they've gone home crying they've had to make decisions about when to stay silent how to do things within the institutions they work at and these are good journalists who want to get good stories out there and their voices are continuously being suppressed which is why we cannot say that the New York Times or any other of these organizations are objective it does not exist it's a myth and I think more and more people are realizing this with non-profit journalism, Dame Magazine, Study Hall, Unicorn Riot gaining in popularity. Because also, of course, the other hindrance to objectivity is the fact that newspapers, all of these mainstream big news organizations, they depend on relationships and advertising and are owned by mostly white, very rich men. And this, again, is a hindrance to their so-called objectivity. 
Twitter has been a really good medium for getting transparency on pay issues and equal pay issues like this. There's been a recent hashtag called publishing paid me. So many authors came forward just to say what they were paid with their advances and black authors were consistently paid way, 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 way less by all the major publishers, Penguin Random House, Bloomsbury Publishing. Jasmine Ward, who is a critically acclaimed novelist, said on Twitter that she fought and fought for her first $100,000 advance, even after her book Salvage the Bones, for which she had received around 20000 and won the National Book Award in 2011 for, had been published. And she had to switch publishers to negotiate a high advance for Sing Unburied Sing, which also won a second National Book Award in 2017. Contrary to that, Lydia Kiesling, who is white, shared that she received a $200,000 advance for her debut literary novel, The Golden State. And she wrote on Twitter that she shared it because she knows for a fact that writers of colour who sell more books than she does have gotten less of an investment up front. Do you think that it would be better to just destroy these organizations and start again? Or do you think that organizations like Condé Nast, which is the parent company that Bon Appetit and Vogue, amongst others, belong to, do you think they can be salvaged or should we get rid of them completely and start anew? I think the idea of authority and objectivity in general and these massive mainstream publications being the only way to get news and the main best way to hear stories is being questioned right now. Like a few weeks ago, I mentioned that article in the New York Times, Ben Smith, this journalist, was shitting on the way that Ronan Farrow reports because it does not adhere to traditional objective reporting. But this entire idea of objectivity now is being questioned more. Let's just embrace the fact you know, there are multiple voices. There's not just one story or one objective way of looking at things. I think these publications are dying out anyway. And like I said, with the New York Times publishing this article in the name of objectivity, they kind of shot themselves in the foot because they had loads of cancelled subscriptions. So either it's their responsibility to change with the wave. They continue to be irresponsible and old fashioned in this way. I think they're just going to die out by themselves and it will be their own fault. If you like this podcast, please rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsession with us. Tweet us. I am at Rina underscore Grobe underscore and Madvi is at Madvi Romani. Follow us on Instagram at the underscore MS underscore informed or shoot us an email misinformed.podcast at gmail.com You will find links to our Twitter and Instagrams in our show notes, as well as links to all the content we have discussed this week. Until next time, thank you for listening.